welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of The King of Kong. There'll always be the argument that video games are meant to be played for fun, to be played at home, relaxing, on a couch, amongst friends, and that's fun. But competitive gaming, when you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. Donkey Kong and Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man and Galaga and Defender. These are the games that caught the public eye. These are the games people cared about. Hosted by Arnie. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. I play video games, which I think is far superior in addiction than any of those other ones. Justin. You know, everything about him is, is, is perfect. Ed Stewart. Everybody wants to crowd around him, everybody wants to see him. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. There's some poor bastard out there who's getting the screws put to him. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. I really think we need to settle this thing. May the best man win. Today we're discussing The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Featuring Steve Wiebe, Billy Mitchell, Walter Day, Brian Koo, directed by Seth Gordon. This is the now playing host who knows no punk bastard ever got a gnarly piece of poontang by being sensitive and considerate, Arnie. Level up, it's Stuart. And this is Justin, but on the leaderboard, I'm known as Notorious KOZ. <laughs> Oh my gosh, guys, now playing arcade. Has it really come to this? <laughs> you know, when I started now playing in 2007, my thought was, we'll review everything. Movies, books, TV, video games. That was in our iTunes description until like 2011 when I realized I might as well change that. But it was part of the original vision. Not that I'd review arcade movies, but that I might review arcade games. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering why, right? I mean, why when we have umpteen Stephen King books to get to and so many other things on the calendar, why are we going to spend so much of the calendar year, 2018, we are going to cover the history of video game cinema. And I think the reason is this is the year of video game cinema. I mean, I just came from The Last Jedi and even Disaster Artist. And what's the trailers before Disaster Artist? Ready Player One and Tomb Raider and... I know some bastardization called Rampage is coming. Mm-hmm. Wreck-It Ralph 2. Uh, you know, these are things that are requested. They're things we've done before. I mean, Tron. Resident Evil. God help us. Now, Tron doesn't really count because Tron was a movie based on computers that became a really kick-ass arcade game. But Resident Evil, Justin, you are back with us another quarter in the slot. The three of us reviewed all those Resident Evil films. You loved them so much. <laughs> yeah, we, we all survived Resident Evil. You know, that one was one series with the same actress throughout. This one, you know, might just be as long and hard of a journey as that was, but at least we're going to get some variety here, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of uh, multiple sequels because they're all stink. They all bombed. <laughs> we're going to see many failed attempts to bring coin ops 
computer games, classic arcade, and new stuff that I don't even know that the kids are into these days. All of that stuff. We're going to cover both the history of video games and the history of cinema. Independently, I care about both a lot. Together, no. I don't think it's going to be a lot of great movies, but I am interested to see if we can pinpoint how one influences the other. At what point did video games stop emulating movies and movies started emulating video gameplay? As a kid, if I walked into an arcade, the first game that I would go seek out was Miss Pac-Man. Yeah, it's a great one. And not Pac-Man. Not Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man over Pac-Man. Even more specific than that, Super Miss Pac-Man was my jam. What did she do? Well, see, I've come to find out in later years that this wasn't an official game, but it was on the marquee, Super Miss Pac-Man, but it was just a turbo version of Miss Pac-Man. So Miss Pac-Man went faster than the ghosts. Made it a little bit easier, but that was the game that I put most of my quarters in. After that, Tron, you know, stuff like that. Maybe Gauntlet every once in a while. As we got older, I'm sure you guys are, you know, we're all about the same age. As arcades started to disappear, our options for coin ops became, what did they have at the 7-Eleven? Or what did they have at the hotel you might be staying at in the little room with three games in it? So it got to be to the point where it's like only the biggest games would stick around. And I think that's where games like Gauntlet and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started to really become a thing in my life. Yeah, I think those also had the benefit of like four-player play so that you had at that point the Nintendo in your house and I remember getting an Atari and being like well it's fun but it's not as good as the arcade and then getting a ColecoVision being like well it's better it's still not as good as the arcade and then I even got the Nintendo Entertainment System and I'm like oh it's so close but it's still not the arcade and then finally I think with the 16-bit systems and beyond you know the arcade's were left in the dust and with multiplayer online play you no longer needed to shove a dollar into a machine but i think things like street fighter and mutant ninja turtles and all of those multiplayer coin ops were the ones that held on into the late 80s and the 90s that weren't around so much in the earlier days i've actually this couldn't have come at a better time i spent 2017 doing a national tour of classic arcade games. I have played Pac-Man and Galaga and Miss Pac-Man and Super Pac-Man and Baby Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, Pole Position, Tapper. I've played all of these within the past 12 months at arcades because I went to New Orleans for a vacation and there was a barcade that was just awesome. I spent so much playing Rampage and drinking beer. And then we found a restaurant called Level 257. Oh, that's in Chicago, right? Yeah, it's owned by Namco, the makers of Pac-Man, and they had all kinds of classic games there, played a ton of classic Pac-Man. Then I went to New York and went to the Museum of the Moving Image, and they had a video game display, and you could just play all these old games. So it was really like going back to my childhood at Aladdin's Castle, and I spent every Saturday at Chuck E. Cheese begging my parents for my godparents for five bucks so I could get some tokens and play games for about three and a half minutes before I went home and played games at home. I had home system for whatever reason. I never was at the mall that much. I think I was embarrassed because I'd have to be taken by my parents and I never wanted to be seen with my parents. I never went to Aladdin's castle. I never really hung out at arcades, birthday parties. Someone had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. That's where I got to play with the coin ops. 
But mostly, I yeah, I had everything from Atari, Coleco, even older systems. Our family really loved them throughout the 80s. But yeah, I would always play the inferior versions. And you know what? My favorite game, if I could walk into a arcade and play any game at all, it never came out for home systems. Pingo. Remember Pingo? Yes! With the little ice cubes yes. and everything. <laughs> that is my jam. That is my game. Cubert's close, but Pingo, yeah, it's kind of like Ladybug, if that means anything to listeners. I realize it's a thing with me. I like the games where you played cartoon critters. You know, I didn't really like to be spaceships and cars and all of that. I wanted to be something cute that was going around destroying things. I remember, I Pango was ported to home. I mm. had to look it up because I remembered playing it at home. It was on the C64. Oh, that thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't have one of those in my house. I never got to have my Pingo. But yeah, I love that game. And I did love coin-ups when I got the chance to play them. But again, not the Asteroids, not the Galagas, Cosmic Defender, Tempest. If you were some kind of machine, I wasn't into it. See, and... Other than movies, I would say my two great passions are music and video games. And I don't claim to know a lot about music, but video games I will claim to know a lot about. My first real website was reviewgames.com. I've been a massive gamer. I had an Atari 2600 when I was a kid, and I remember I rolled over asteroids. Remember what rolling over is when you scored so high that like the top digit went away and your score was zero again? Nice. I rolled it over seven times until the point that I just got bored with winning and walked away. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that would happen when it felt like the games wouldn't end, like you just couldn't get to an ending. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just like, God, I don't want to play this anymore. And then I had a Coleco at my godparents' house that I never played as much, but always really loved, especially the keypad stuff, Nintendo. But it was in the 90s that things escalated for me because I became a PC gamer thanks to Star Wars and their X-Wing game. And it got me into hardware and adding sound cards, adding joystick boards, adding all this funky stuff to my computer that I'd never had before, CD-ROMs. And I played games. We got to games like Doom and Duke Nukem. I started making levels for them. We got to things like Wing Commander, and that's when I said I want to be a game designer. I knew in my life I wanted to entertain people. I hadn't figured out how. I wanted to be a game designer, and that's when you guys have to remember this. Or Justin, I think you might have been a little more plugged in. Remember like when John Romero, and I'm not talking about the horror movie guy, but the Doom designer was a rock star and like they were advertising that game Daikatana as John Romero's gonna make you his bitch. Oh yeah, his name was above the title. Yeah. <laughs> American programmers were quite popular in the 90s before the PlayStation 3 made things so complicated we had to start outsourcing again. So I went back to school, got a master's degree in computer science and started developing games on my own and then I ended up not pursuing it because the game industry had changed and I'd gone to the game developers conference. I talked to a lot of game developers who were getting out of it and going to work at like State Farm. They're saying, you don't want to join this industry now. You're going to work four times the hours for half the pay. So I, I didn't and I found a podcast to entertain people. But man, there's probably none of these games that we're going to talk about well, there's a couple, but very few that I haven't played, mostly on PC or 
I did end up getting into some emulators and things. And if people wonder why I've been playing video games live on our Facebook page, I'm going to keep doing it. For every game we review, before we do the review, I'm going to play the game, maybe for the first time or maybe just revisit it. And you guys can watch me live on Facebook because I'm going to re-familiarize myself with the games before we come to the reviews. You know, there's a hard part where I just stop playing games, but these early ones, I do feel like it's bringing a lot of nostalgia. Where were you guys with Donkey Kong? I agree with the people in this movie. It was hard. I liked it. I liked playing it, but I never got too far. There was a mythical pie factory that I kept hearing about. Never got to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Donkey Kong is definitely one of the staples of the arcade. I mean, if you're going to name five arcade cabinets from back in the day, that's always going to be on the list. But you're right. It was always way too hard for me to even continue trying. I think if I ever got past the elevator stage, that was a good day for me. My talent in the Donkey Kong world might have been in Donkey Kong Jr. where you were actually... Yes. Had a little more of a chance, I think. I was so much better. Always the juniors. (laughs) For me, Donkey Kong is one of the kings of arcades. I remember the first time I'd never played a video game. I was like five or six years old and my sister took me to this place and I think it might have been Chuck E. Cheese. It may have just opened. My sister was 12 years older than me. So she was 20 back home from college and she took me to this place and she gave me 75 cents and I could play any game I wanted. And my first game was Frogger because it had a cute frog on the side. My second game was Pac-Man. And my third game, when I had one last quarter, was Donkey Kong. And I died so damn quick. (laughs) And I've ended up playing a ton of Donkey Kong. I had it for the Atari, and my god, was that thing pathetic. The graphics and the controls. Yeah, before I had an Atari 2600, you had it. And I remember being so excited you told me you had Donkey Kong until you put the cartridge in. I was like, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to go back to Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that day, and these memories are just coming back to me, but Mm. Donkey Kong wasn't out for the Atari when I got it, and it was like the arcade game I wanted, and I knew it was coming. There were commercials on Saturday morning. It was like the first game I was excited for release day, and my parents took me to Kay's Merchandise to get Donkey Kong, and I came home, and it was like, this ain't Donkey Kong. <laughs> this is little blob block that jumps over circle squares. I remember having that same disappointment. Donkey Kong was one of those first times as a kid realizing like, wait a minute, there's something to miss here. The levels weren't even tilted. Everything was parallel. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it got worse when, I mean, because it was such a huge hit, they would try to sell you things like, well, you can buy your own coin-op, like these little handheld things, or the Donkey Kong watch, where, oh yeah, you can play with it just with a couple buttons on the side of a watch. I can best you on that. Oh, you can, because I won't play them. Well, I mean, those little ones, I remember my godparents telling me, you're going to want Coleco. I'm like, Coleco, those are those little machines that are crap. I didn't know what Coleco Vision was, but I had the Donkey Kong board game Ooh. and the Pac-Man board oh. Board game. Yeah, that was a good game. Yeah, I think about it. <laughs> Where you had to like roll the dice and barrels would come at you and mm. fireballs would come after you and you had to like jump and you had to go so many moves and you'd race the other players up the ladder and things and the Pac-Man one. Man, that one was marbles everywhere and you had little plastic pieces that would pick up the marbles. Speaking about things sparking memories from childhood. Wasn't there a Donkey Kong cartoon on Saturday mornings, too? I didn't watch it, but I remember it being there. Oh, it was so weird because CBS had a two-hour cartoon block of memory serves. It might have been one hour, but it was four cartoons. I remember Pac-Man. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong where Donkey Kong was the bad guy and Mario was the good guy with the princess. 
Then Qbert, who was my man. If yeah. there's a video game arcade that I really could just like cling to, I had Qbert like stickers all over my walls. He was just cute and fuzzy and went and made those sounds. Loved Qbert. And then Donkey Kong Jr., where suddenly Donkey Kong was the good guy and dealing with Jr. It was very surreal that one cartoon apart, Donkey Kong went from nemesis to hero. <laughs> Every Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I think our generation, like for us, that was like what the internet was for the generation after us. It was the thing that changed everything. Kids played outside and then video games came and kids stopped playing soccer. They stopped playing football. It was all about what you could do with video games. And I definitely remember feeling like, yeah, this is what I wanted to do with my free time. And Donkey Kong, I mean, I played that on every system, and I played it online recently on my Nintendo Classic. I'd say the Nintendo version is the one I'm most familiar with, which is why I get cocky, because I can always get to, like, the spring level on it. And then I go to an arcade, and the timing is just so different. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, I jumped that barrel. Why am I dead? Mm -hmm. So how are you with King of Kong? When did you first see this movie we're here to talk about today, which is only peripherally about Donkey Kong? You know, this was one of those movies that I did hear about. I don't think I knew about it before it came out, but I think it was one of those things that like as soon as Netflix started getting big and you could put your discs in your queue. This is one of the earliest things I remember getting from Netflix in the mail to watch. Probably 07 or 08 was the first time I saw this. So it's been a good almost 10 years or so. I saw it in 07. I mean, it came out in late 07, and this is when I'd started going to Comic-Con. My first San Diego Comic-Con was in 2006, and so I went 2006, 2007, and King of Kong was all over Comic-Con. They had a panel and all this stuff, and the panel actually is a bonus feature on the DVDs, or at least part of it. And so I was really aware of this movie. I'd heard good buzz, and so I watched it as soon as it came out and remembered really liking it. I had a really different opinion of watching it this time, though. It was just, my life has changed a lot in the past 10 years, and I looked at these people very differently this time around. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it early on when it came to home viewing, I, DVD probably, and it was pushed on me. It was people saying, oh, you got to see it. It was on the lips of people that even didn't watch documentaries. I see a fair amount of documentaries, usually if it's about a subject matter I care about, or if it's a documentarian I admire, I, I will seek them out. I would say they are maybe 20% of my film diet, but I don't always see every documentary that gets a buzz, but this one, it connected with mass audiences because I think it's dealing with subject matter that our whole generation can relate to. Yeah, this was in the running for being in our book, actually. I ended up going with Confessions of a Superhero, thinking it was more unknown and just a little bit more underrated, but I had toyed with putting this one in as the other documentary. Do you guys watch a lot of documentary, and should we approach this with a different mindset than if it were a scripted, acted, traditional, fictional film? Keep in mind, this isn't the first documentary we've covered it now playing. It's the first you're on, but yeah. we did do Galaxy of Toys, the Star sure. Wars one. Marjorie, Jerry, and I looked at that documentary. I think... I wouldn't say that documentaries are a large portion of my movie watching, but I certainly watch ones that I find interesting. And Subject matter is what brings you to yeah. it. Yeah. If it's about something you really love, that will get you to it more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I just watched the Spielberg one on HBO because I like Steven Spielberg. I do watch a lot of documentaries. I don't know if I go super far down rabbit holes. I've seen a lot of the big ones that hit out there. Paradise Lost, that one has always fascinated me, how they kind of kept up in real time over the course of 20 
years with these three kids from West Memphis. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one was great. It took me a second to recognize the name, but yeah, we talked a lot about that with the Blair Witch. And Yeah, I mean, but on HBO Go, documentaries is, you know, I find myself flipping through that section quite often. But more to Stuart's question, is this movie a documentary in like the Ken Burns vein of documentary? I don't know. This one almost feels like it plays a little bit more like a reality TV episode than documenting history as it happened. Shaping the story is easier for fictional filmmakers, right? If it's not working, you can always make something, change the story, go shoot something else. But with documentarians, you're an archivist. You have what you have and you have to shape whatever that is. You basically have to let the story tell itself at a certain point. You can influence things by being selective about the footage you have, but ultimately it dictates to you. And so I think for that reason, it's always harder for me to look at the artistry of documentary because it is so much more about finding the right shots and the right moments and being there at the right time than it is coming up with the right story. I don't know. Reality TV, like Justin mentioned, has heavily influenced my cynicism when it comes to documentaries. Oh yeah. Well, understandably, they've corrupted the documentary, frankly. Yeah, and so you can entice people to do the things you want them to do. You can be there as the devil on the shoulder. Especially, I love the television series Unreal on Lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's written by somebody who actually worked on The Bachelor, and it confirms everything I've ever suspected about the producers of things like The Real World and all of that, the way they get people drunk. and They create dramatic situations so they can get the footage they want and then edit it to fit their narrative. And I wondered if that was the case here. I mean, we're dealing with director Seth Gordon, who I don't know as a documentarian. I know him as the director of really bad comedies. I mean, like shithole comedies and then Horrible Bosses, which I actually liked. I was going to say, I'd argue Horrible Bosses isn't that bad. (laughs) Yeah, but Four Christmases was intolerable. I don't even know what that is. Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn as a couple of divorced parents that have to go to all four parents on Christmas and... Yeah, if the word Christmas even appears in the title, I won't see it. Identity Thief. I couldn't get through it. Oh my lord. I like Jason Bateman in most movies, but that movie was sickening. I don't see that kind of comedy. I don't know this director. I mean, even like the TV shows he's done. Goldbergs, I might have seen an episode. I watch every episode of the Goldbergs. Really enjoy that series, basically, because I feel like I am the main character. Like... (laughs) He made a Goonies movie in one episode. He's living my childhood. Yeah, I get the sense that he loves the 80s a lot. So for him to make a documentary about 80s pop culture, it's in his wheelhouse. He doesn't have to be a Ken Burns in order to get the right insight and to get the feel of of the subject matter. Last year, he did Baywatch, and that was an utter turd in the water, too. Ooh, yeah, I wouldn't watch that. Wouldn't watch anything you're telling me he made. Yeah, and sadly, I looked him up. I'm like, yep, seen that, seen that, seen that. (laughs) And he was executive producer of Pixels. Are we doing that as part of this arcade? (laughs) Please, no. (laughs) Uh, You know, we can put that out to the fans. If you feel like after we've gotten through much of this year, you want us to keep going and doing Pixels, I guess it couldn't be the worst thing we're seeing in this (laughs) retrospective. I'd rather do Angry Birds the movie before Pixels. Oh, you are doing that. You are doing Angry Birds. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) 
But you know what? This one is easy. I don't know how much is true and how much is not, but it is structured so much like an 80s movie. You know, it feels like a Rocky sequel or a Karate Kid sequel in the way that we're going to have a very clear-cut bad guy, a very clear-cut good guy, and there's a showdown. I mean, the subtitle, A Fistful of Quarters, makes you think about one of those westerns where the guy in the black and the guy in the white hat are standing at opposite ends of the street holding their guns. I just think that it's that clearly drawn, and so it can be enjoyed, even if you don't like documentaries, I do think that this is one where you could make an exception and probably find entertainment value. I would add to that, even if you don't like video games, you'd be able to find some entertainment in here, because it's not 100% about video games. It's it's very character driven. And the two movies you mentioned, Karate Kid and Rocky, both make an appearance on the soundtrack here. Ah, they do. Yes, indeed. This soundtrack. This is the 80s for sure. Arnie, if this is not a traditional podcast, should we be doing a plot summary? Are you going to cover this? I don't think there's a plot because it's a documentary and a plot is something scripted. I can do a summary of the story. All right, let's go with that. King of Kong follows two championship arcade players. First is World Donkey Kong champion Bill Mitchell. This hot sauce mogul is the center of a group of people obsessed with classic video games and besting and keeping the high scores on games like Qbert, Pac-Man, and especially Donkey Kong. These championships are monitored by Twin Galaxies, an organization founded by Walter Day, the ultimate arcade referee. But in Washington State, an unknown player is working for the high score. Laid-off substitute teacher Steve Wiebe has been spending his time learning to play Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. in his garage, and eventually he becomes the first person in history to break a 1 million point score on Donkey Kong. But Twin Galaxies and Walter Day refused to enter his score in the records because he got his game board from Roy Mr. Awesome Schilt, the nemesis of the Twin Galaxies peeps. So to prove himself, Steve goes to an arcade championship in New Hampshire and in front of everyone beats the 1 million point score. But in absentia, Bill Mitchell sends a videotape showing an even higher score, making Bill champion for only a day. Nine months later, Twin Galaxies has made the officiary of all video game Guinness records, and they have an event in Florida. Again, Steve goes to try to beat Bill's score, but he fails to do so. Yet he has won the respect of Walter and Twin Galaxies, who say they'll honor any videotapes he sends in the future. Defeated, Steve goes back home, and Bill's score is entered into the Guinness Book of World Records. But then about a year later, as some end text tells us, at home, Steve did beat Bill's score, caught it on video, and became the world champion of Donkey Kong. Now, there's a lot of bonus features on here, as you might imagine with the documentary. They shot over 400 hours of footage. Mm -hmm. But here's what I found most interesting of all the behind-the-scenes stuff, is Seth Gordon and producer Ed Cunningham were the two real masterminds behind this documentary. And Seth Gordon just knew he wanted to make a documentary about arcade players. He actually lived in New Hampshire and played games at Fun Spot and was aware of these competitions. And he thought there might be a story there. And he started talking to people about the video game industry and about these world records. And he said that all roads led him to Billy Mitchell. The whole Steve Wiebe thing 
was not on their radar. It was not part of their plot. It turned out Ed Cunningham went to film school with Steve Wiebe's friend, who you see on here, the guy who pays for him to go to New Hampshire, mm -hmm. was a mutual friend of Ed Cunningham and said to Ed, hey, I know you're working on this video game thing. You might find it interesting. They completely blackballed this good friend of mine. And then they decided to go to Washington State. But initially, it was very fun spot organized, and they were going to follow a lot of channels champions, just seeing who they could break the record. The 80-year-old Kubert champion was going to have a major story of her trying to reclaim the title she had 20 years ago at the age of 80. There was going to be a Pac-Man story and a Donkey Kong story. And they said that one by one, all of those fizzled out. The 80-year-old grandma couldn't beat the score. And the Pac-Man machine was broken at the arcade or something. Oh, God. And so they really were like, what are we going to do? And then fortunately, by luck, the Steve Wiebe versus Bill Mitchell story, they realized when they were looking at their footage, this is what was forming was basically, yeah, because they play you're the best around. It's like the karate kid, only instead of Daniel-san learning karate, you have some born loser out of Washington State learning Donkey Kong. <laughs> In his garage. <laughs> yeah, and this is exactly what I'm saying about being a good documentarian. Oftentimes, that means listening to your material. It, it means you're not going to say, hey, I'm going to keep with my original ideas. We are going to somehow make what I conceived happen. You have to be willing to go with the flow, whatever your videotape footage is saying. And yeah, I did wonder that. There seems to be so many colorful characters. Everything is kind of built around this championship back in 1982. We learned that in November 1982, outside this arcade in Iowa, Life Magazine did a photo of all the best players in North America. And really, any of those people probably has a story to tell. That they're going to focus on a battle of good and evil between the cocky winner and the no-luck guy who's going to give it one more shot is a documentarian choice that ultimately I agree with, but it didn't have to go this way. Was any of this stuff on you guys' radar at the time back in the day? You know, 1985, did you guys know about Twin Galaxies and they were the scorekeepers? Had you heard of Billy Mitchell back then? I mean, because to me, this was all brand new news. I was born and raised in Nebraska, eastern Nebraska, not too far from Ottumwa, Iowa. I've never heard of any of this stuff until this documentary came around. And I think that's one of the things I love about it is it's such a subculture that, yeah, everyone plays video games. I mean, it's said early on, it starts with a William S. Burroughs quote about our universe is composed of war and games. And it's true. Even a nun can relate to this because at some point she's going to play cards. Everyone understands games, but not everyone is going to be a competitive gamer. This is a very small subsect. I think it's going to be quite eye-opening. It was for me, anyway. Yeah, I hadn't heard of any of these people. I love the fact that People Magazine got them all together. You just picture that editor. We got to get the kids to read this magazine. Let's get these video game people. And I love the picture of Billy Mitchell there with this giant hickey on his neck. <laughs> He's the Donkey Kong champion. And apparently they brought in cheerleaders for these video game people back at that photo shoot. And Billy and one of the cheerleaders right before the big photo shoot, Billy and 
ended up with this huge hickey on his neck. <laughs> it's even said by someone that it's a way of getting girls. If you're good at centipede, they're going to come talk to you. Pretty girls can't resist a gamer. It's a funny idea, particularly when you look at these guys. They are, by 80s definition, pure nerds. I mean, Billy Mitchell with his mustache kind of looks like Mario, right? He looks <laughs> like the Mario brother. Mario meets Steve Perry from Journey, you know. Yeah, only in the, the subsect could you look cool. On the outside, I think a lot of people are going to be like, whoa, these are some major geeks. All right, here's where I said I'm a very different person now than I was 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, I looked at this and I'm like, what the hell? What is all of this gatekeeping and all of this? I was pretty new to podcasting and pretty new to Star Wars fandom. Flash forward to 2017, replace video games with Star Wars, and I know these people. Yeah, very much in the same boat with you there, Arnie. Going into this, I'm very careful to judge any of these people because at heart, a lot of people are nerds. I'm a nerd. I think you guys are both nerds. But there's all these different factions of nerds. You know, we're in different silos, but there's something about this group of guys that feels extra dweeby. No, Justin, that's the thing. I know the Bill Mitchell of Star Wars, <laughs> and I know the Brian Koo of Star Wars, and I know the Mr. Awesome of Star Wars. I mean, the parallels run so deep. And again, I think that's why this could be relatable, is ultimately the politics that are going to be involved here play out all the time throughout history. I mean, this game is as old as time, but these players, not everyone got to hang out with them in the 80s. Not everyone went to the coin-op and met these guys. There's something that's just universal that I didn't realize till Marjorie pointed it out to me. Marjorie's stepmother raised beagles, show beagles, and was part of a dog club. And that dog club was full of backbiting and backstabbing and people with cliques and factions trying to get their person as the president of the Beagle Club. And it's like, what the hell are these people doing? What's going on? And it's just, you look at anything from the office where you work to the clubs where you go, anything where there's a rank and there's a chance to ascend and there's a view of power and status, no matter how sad that power and status may be to outsiders, as sad as a Beagle Club presidency is to me, that is something that they will work hard for. I think it's human nature, as sad as it is to say, to be an asshole. Yeah, I, I agree that hopefully the takeaway is even if you've never played a video game, you can look at this and while you may laugh at some of these people and how self-serious pretentious they are with what they've accomplished. I mean, certainly Billy Mitchell is, wow, when we, when we get a look at how much his narcissism has colored his perspective on life, I think very few people when we meet him would want to be him. Maybe he'd like to get his high score, but he doesn't seem to be the genius and the icon that he seems to feel that he is of success he is a hot sauce millionaire i mean this man is very wealthy and i guess he gets that way by going to grocery stores and pushing other brands of hot sauce behind his <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do i mean again here enter our villain or at least our giant that needs to be taken down by david goliath has got to go down this is the donkey kong champion gamer of the century and we're introduced to him in a very loud mullet and statue of liberty tie talking about how you know you have to pay the price for competing at the level of games that he does here you can't believe that someone could take something like video games and turn it into what sounds like life and death stakes i just can't believe somebody has that hair unironically yeah yeah i mean when we first meet this guy it's 
immediately apparent that this guy is just the very picture of American over pride. You know, it's almost jingoistic and it's almost his sense of entitlement that is coming through more than anything about him right there on screen for all to see. His signature will eventually find out when he gets that top score, he will sign it USA into the machine. Again, he does start to represent American hubris. He claims this documentary is very unfair to him. I'm sure. I read what few interviews he's done about it. He doesn't do much press for this, as you might imagine. And he claims as of at least a few years ago, he's never even seen it. But he's read enough reviews and had enough people tell him about it that he feels this paints him in a very unfair light and that they filmed a lot of him. And let's not forget, this guy is shepherding an 80-year-old woman to an arcade game and buying her a Qbert machine. There are some altruistic things he does do in this documentary that they include. And yet the way his parents talk about him, he always has a plan. He's always scheming. The words they choose to use about him how he will not be kept down even at this beginning he's the first person we're being introduced to and you would think immediately he's the main character and the one we're going to follow the most and thus be our protagonist as much as a documentary has one but that's not the case Yeah, in that 1982 competition, he's supposed to be the centipede guy, but he ends up beating the guy that wrote the book on Donkey Kong. That The guy that said, here's how you master Donkey Kong, goes down to this guy. So yeah, all right, he's got cred. He's a savant. He can play these things. Later we find out he does it for Pac-Man. I think we're told five different games he holds the world record at some point. And that is enough for him to create a false sense of identity. Everyone can probably find something admirable about this character, but ultimately, to sum him up in a word, pride. And who doesn't want to see that fall? It's really weird to me, though, that he is friends with Steve Sanders. Because Steve Sanders, we're going to find out, was at that People photo shoot claiming to be the Donkey Kong champion and completely full of shit. And it's Billy who called him out on that and was saying, okay, play me and just schooled him. And in effect, this is what led to the creation of Twin Galaxies. Right there at that moment when there were people posing for a magazine and I guess getting all those women with their centipede that they had to create an organization to make sure people weren't lying. And yet, despite being what I would consider the ultimate of humiliation, I mean, I can't imagine what internet society would do to somebody right now who got up there and claimed to be the world champion of something and just to have completely made it up the way that they'd have to just go into hiding and yet these two became really good friends i wouldn't call this friendship he becomes his bitch i mean let's look at this guy he may be an attorney probably on some level more professionally accomplished than you know bottling barbecue sauce at least but yeah i mean look at the way that he calls them that he sent out to scope arcades and be like okay they're on this score they're i mean he just looks like he has no dignity that poor steve sanders just literally once he was beaten by this guy i mean it's even framed in biblical terms the wrath of billy brought him to become a better man i mean gag yeah steve is a moon caught in billy's orbit at this point i wouldn't call it a friendship so much as a dependent relationship at this point i may be influenced by the bonus features because i know from the bonus features steve did do the press tour and billy did not steve was at comic 
Comic-Con, Billy stayed home. Well, <laughs> you see that in this movie. He is always the one going to the arcade. Billy can't be troubled years later to come back and play live in front of people. It's this guy that's always, yeah, doing the footwork. But he and Billy talk literally every day. They text each other. And he's also Billy's lawyer. So he's his employee. He's his friend. And I think that he does have a very interesting role to play here. But I just find his origin to be one almost worthy of its own documentary. You know, the man who would be Donkey Kong King. I mean, haven't you seen that? I mean, I've definitely had bosses. I've watched them create minions, people in their image. They promise them things and give them their own little fiefdoms of power. And yeah, it can be very, very sad. You want to pop that <laughs> balloon. Again, I could forgive this guy all of his hubris if he didn't have that moment. And it's the thing we learn right before we meet the true hero of this, where he laughs at the fact that because he's had so much success, it means that some poor guy somewhere else is always getting stuck, is always getting screwed. And ha ha ha. It's almost like he's taking pride about the fact that he is monopolizing winning at the expense of someone else. And you talk about the lackey. We'll get to Steve in just a second. But I think that what you're describing, that winged monkey, is totally Brian Koo, who we'll get to a little bit later. Oh, the wannabe for sure. Yeah, the way you guys are describing Steve, it's totally Brian. Brian is Billy's sycophant. But yes, Steve is our hero. Let's be clear. There's two Steves. Steve Sanders is the lackey for our enemy, Billy. And Steve Weeby, we should just probably call him Weeby from now on. Although, unfortunately, it sounds like Dweeby, is our (laughs) humble, average Joe family man who is going to, after a lifetime of striking out, really find his stride here in the video game world. They have so much 80s music in this movie, which I think is a great choice. I mean, their 80s games bring the 80s music, but how could they not bring Lonesome Loser into this? You know, just the guy who's a loser, but he still keeps on trying. Uh, They got the cure pictures of you. Very goth, very sad. Yeah, everything he tried, he was either not good enough or bad timing, who knows? But he seems very genuine with his gap to smile and his family life. But grunge rock wouldn't have him. He was going to be a drummer in some Seattle band. He's in the Washington area. He was an athlete, apparently, and then I threw out his arm during the state championships. A good drawer was going to use that skill at Boeing and then got fired. You just see him established, basically, at this point, middle-aged and failing at everything in life, despite all his talent. Yeah, I mean, calling him a loser is a bit harsh. I mean, yes, everything you said there is true. But at the end of the day, and this is something that the documentary doesn't focus much on, but at the end of the day, he does have a nice house and a loving family. So it's not like this is some dude living in a one-bedroom apartment somewhere, lonely and out of sorts. But yes, professionally, in athletics, maybe he's not as fulfilled as he maybe once dreamed of being. Yeah, their nice house makes me wonder what the wife does, because he's not the bread earner. He gets laid off and spends a couple of years in his garage playing Donkey Kong, ignoring his son when his son needs his ass wiped. And when we see him here, he's a teacher. The bonus features make clear he was a sub. He was working from time to time. By the time the documentary got around to visiting him, he had gotten a part-time substitute teaching gig. Oh, subs. I was so mean to subs. He's saying that, and I just, there's where my guilt lies. I was mostly a good kid. I was horrible to the subs. I just think about some of the things I did. So I feel for him. That makes it even more sympathetic when we establish him here as somebody that wants to just win something. It's really not about Donkey Kong. It's just about not coming in 
can last. And so, yeah, the wife is very supportive of him at night, after family duties are over, going to the garage and trying to master Donkey Kong. And there's a wonderful video of him actually taping the world record. He actually breaks it while his son Derek is saying, wipe my butt. (laughs) (laughs) No more Donkey Kong. Yeah, the kids, later on, the daughters are going to be like, some people ruin their lives for a Guinness World Record. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the kids are just on point here. You got to love this family. The whole family. And again, I think that's a big reason why we rally so quickly with Weeby is that because he's genuine salt of the earth and he's surrounded by a family that clearly helps him become the champion that he's going to be. But I got something his mother said, but I was feeling it this time when he talks about the numbers and he talks about the drumming and he talks about the repetition and things that when the mother says she wondered if he's a little bit autistic, is there a little bit of at least obsessive compulsive disorder? Maybe some Asperger's going on here because he is truly an obsessive person and figuring out those patterns and seeing those patterns about how the springs bounce and learning things nobody had ever paid attention to learn about Donkey Kong. You know, this is where I do kind of wish Ken Burns would do video games, you know, the 10-part series. Because, yeah, they just do it a little bit with Donkey Kong. They have a moment where they break down the game and show you little tricks and just reinforce the idea that for early arcade games, the beauty of them is that they are simple. That it is just about recognizing certain patterns and being able to do repetition. If your hand-eye coordination is just so, yeah, you can succeed very well at these games. And it is fun just to think of them and breaking down... solving them as puzzles. Yeah, I remember new video games, you know, our younger listeners won't realize this, but these old games had patterns Mm -hmm. and it was a big thing on the schoolyard. Do you know the pattern? Do you know what you need to know to get through the levels? And it's because these were very simply programmed machines. And so they add little quirks like he figures out you can make the barrels fall if you happen to move under this ladder and things and just figuring out the patterns because there was no randomness it was always moving the same way at the same time in response to you but that's not necessarily true they do mention that the barrels are random but there are certain patterns that can be picked up on And I think speaking to what you were kind of picking up on there, Arnie, is his mom questioned whether or not he might be on the spectrum or whatnot. And it might have been somewhat jokey in that manner. But I think that's something that gets thrown out somewhat lightly when it comes to people that are obsessed with something. I think maybe obsessive compulsive, like you said, is maybe a little bit closer to the type of personality that can get sucked in to something like this and actually excel at it. I think anytime you cover, you know, I've seen a lot of biopics about athletes or artists, God knows the artist. Obsession is a key component to success. You know, a lot of it is coming from a drive that is greater than the average person. And that's, you know, it might make them quote unquote better than the average person at that game but it also is you know who wants to have that kind of unsatiable thirst i mean it is scary when you look at that stuff and i think to explore that would make this documentary a little bit darker than i would have wanted to see it go and when they're talking about the perfect game of pac-man though i went back to the story that i told when we reviewed the wizard on the patron show about how i played the perfect game of contra on my nintendo and i had that obsession i did this all day every day for like a month and it was admittedly only a month before i did it because i'd played the game for years before that but it was just this drive and somebody said to me what are you going to do after you do this i'm like i don't know just I will have done it. And it was a complete 
drive to do this thing. And I may know a little bit about obsessions. I Mm. tend to indulge mine from time to time, and I'm good with that. Yeah, I, I think all kids do this. But at a certain point, I think it is a challenge as an adult watching another adult descend on this. Again, we would judge Steve Wiebe a whole lot harsher if we saw that his wife Nicole and the kids weren't supportive of this and didn't see that this is something that he needed to build himself back up after so much failure. Sure. And for every Steve Wiebe out there, how many unknowns are doing the exact same thing in their garage, you know, spending way too much time obsessed with a video game or obsessed with building a model or rebuilding an engine and ignoring the rest of the things in their life to a certain degree? Disaster artist. What happens when you don't have the talent to back up the drive? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And every time I watch this, I don't know if either of you do, but don't you get the idea of, well, I could do that. I could just start playing Donkey Kong nonstop and pick up the arcade game and throw it in my house and play it till I'm the world champion. It doesn't look that hard. I think Billy even has a line. It's quoted at one point that jobs are what you do when you aren't playing video games or something that like if you aren't good enough to be a gamer, you're going to be stuck in the rat race of yeah, the nine to five. And again, we see in many ways in this first act of the movie, the stark contrast between the prideful got it all winner that has seemingly effortlessly conquered all video games of the classic coin-op era and this guy who's just come to it really late. I don't get the sense that he was a gamer until the day he just plugged it into his garage and started going. Now, there was something said. It's really glossed over, but I caught it on my second viewing and with some of the commentaries watching again that he returned to this for solace. This Mm. was something he had done as a kid. I don't know if he did it this obsessively, but he really liked Donkey Kong Jr. specifically. And you'll notice it's really weird to me that the cabinet in his garage always says Donkey Kong Jr., but he then put a Donkey Kong board in it. And I guess what's the heart of an arcade game? It's not the case. It's not the monitor. It's not even the joystick and the buttons. It's the board in there. And so that's going to become a real big plot point here. Yep. But... He had returned to this video game as something that he remembered enjoying. And I mean, after getting laid off, I can imagine you're looking for anything to bring some kind of pleasure, especially if you're now the stay-at-home husband with kids needing their butts wiped. I do question his parenting ability when you hear that kid needing his diaper changed or whatever, and he's like... No, I'm beating the record. You you just sit there shitty. I, it comes off very sweet to me. I mean, the loving exchange that is going on there, it may have just been that moment that they chose to include in the film, but I got the sense that the kid wasn't in dire stress. God knows if there was a real emergency, I think he would have tried again. Yes, very true. As a dad of two, there's definitely times where you're doing something a little bit more important than what the kid seems to be thinking is the most important thing on the planet at this moment. And this just happened to be coming at a time when he was ready to make his mark on the world. It was cute that it was caught on camera for all to see. Again, the fact that this is a documentary and we're seeing things that are perhaps manipulated in some way, but ultimately come down to some kind of empirical truth gives this movie a power that I don't think if it were scripted, you wouldn't believe some of the turns of events here. And one of the things that is really outlandish is because of that board, Arnie, because he got that board from Roy Schultz, it's going to negate his high score. My biggest fault on this documentary entirely is Roy Schultz is a pariah 
in this video game community. He was the missile command high scorer world record, but something happened and they don't ever explain what, where his score was invalidated and he became this ultimate pariah and he is the enemy, the nemesis of Bill Mitchell. Like the two of them go at it. And again, the Star Wars community, I'm seeing all these dynamics. You've got your lead collectors and then you've got their nemesis who did something underhanded to get a collectible or sniped them or something but has become a pariah or faked a collectible or lied about something and then you have the newcomers who have to break in and if you're not in the click and I know this because when I started a Star Wars collecting podcast I didn't know other collectors it took me years to learn the politics of the collector community and to become an accepted member of them wow yeah I know you're understanding now yeah, you don't just walk right in. Yeah, and I get that in all walks of life. Again, no matter what you're into or what job you've ever held, if you've ever entered a community, these politics play out. And sometimes they feel very important. When we see them on the national stage in actual national American politics, they feel very important. When you see it in microcosm here, it feels like, yeah, this is a Christopher Guest movie come to life. Now, from that point of view, I can see why Twin Galaxies would send some representatives out to check out the machine. That makes sense, you know? I mean, their reputation is on the line, and they just want to validate that everything is on the up and up. But that's where it takes a little bit of a twist, where these guys seem to just walk into the garage after being told by Weeby's wife that he's not home yet and just come back in a little bit. So there's a little bit of a breaking and entering going on here and some underhandedness going on with these representatives. If you listen to the exact words Weeby's wife says, you gotta pay attention. And this is really expounded upon in bonus features and interviews after the fact. They did not break and enter. The wife said, he's not here, please come back later. And they didn't, they waited for her to leave and then went back and her mother was there. And they said, can we go in? And the mother's like, oh yeah, come on in. She made them beverages and they played the game. What she says is they came back when I wasn't home and my mother let them in. You got to just pay attention to the mother let them in. It is in this movie though, that fact is downplayed and it does make them seem like these nefarious goons, these mafiosos coming to take the board. Yeah, mafia. This feels like the Godfather recast with the cast of Big Bang Theory or something. It's really... (laughs) a funhouse mirror version of a mob movie. Yes, the documentary might have played that a little bit like that. And, okay, so not breaking and entering, but still a little bit underhanded. You know, if they wanted to be respectful, they could have gone out and got a cup of coffee and come back when Steve was there. You know, there's still something shady going on there outside of just showing up to do their due diligence. Yeah, they're there to discredit. They are working for a company that has a vested interest in Billy remaining number one. We meet and spend a lot of time with his guru, Walter Day, who was there in the 1982 photo shoot, was the one that got the city to close down the street so they could do that photo op with the cheerleaders and the coin ops. And he considers himself as the man that gave the world the gift of Billy. He doesn't want to see him bested by some unknown. And it's more to the point that Billy is part of Twin Galaxies. And in the commentary, Seth and Ed say it's almost like if you had the referees 
for your football game, but the referees also played for the Giants. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, how can they be impartial when they are a player in the game and the referees themselves? The fact that Bill Mitchell is part of Twin Galaxies, one of their founding members, one of their judges. Walter, especially on the bonus features, he talks about how he bullshitted his way into this job, about how he said he was the end-all, be-all ruler of the video games back in the 80s, and people believed him, and it kind of built into something where he did become the foremost expert because he filled a hole that was needed after cheaters were discovered and nobody else had. But he does pride himself on fairness. He does want to do the right thing, which is why it is so suspect that they threw out Weeby score because a photo showed there might have been a little bit of buildup on the board. Not that that would have caused anything. And the fact that this board was purchased for him by Mr. Awesome, who did it just to give the finger to Billy. Mr. Awesome knew Weeby could beat Billy's score, and so he bought him this board, and there's, again, I'm even getting confused what's the bonus features and what isn't, but he says he never touched that board. He paid for the board, the board was shipped to him, and here's the ultimate irony, and it's not in the movie, but this is on a bonus feature. It belonged to Robert Murzik, one of the other chief referees of Twin <laughs> Galaxies. He'd sold it to the guy oh, wow. who sold it to <laughs> Mr. Awesome, who sent it to Weeby. So it was one of their inner circle's boards, but because Roy Schilt had paid for it, and Roy Schilt is something, man. He yeah. is a character who deserves a documentary all his own. Yeah, that's the problem, is that he is no less douchey than Billy. You know, if it were about Roy versus Billy, I don't know that we would have the same state. There's something alleged about a death threat, or did Billy fake his own death threat? <laughs> did they have any explanation of what that was? But I believe that Roy is capable of going psycho over Missile Command. He looks unstable. And when I see these videos of Captain Awesome's Guide to Girls, I want to wretch. Oh, yeah. It turns out he posed for Playgirl because he saw all the Playboy centerfolds and said, these girls probably have no problems getting dates. So he posed for Playgirl, and I'll give him this. You don't see it much in this movie, but he is built. He lifts. He's got really oh, big arms. I thought that was a Photoshop or something. He's really a bodybuilder. Yeah, there's one full body shot where he was really cut out of stone. Yeah, no, when you see the bonus features with him, he flexes and everything. It's like, okay, Mr. Awesome is a title for a WWE guy and he has the body for it. But yeah, he apparently got some women and presumably, according to the stories, he got some guys out of his Playgirl centerfold spread. But YouTube videos of this guy are amazing. The Poontang line at the beginning. I mean, I don't even understand that line that I quoted. I've listened to it twice. It's like, what kind of demon are you? Oh my God. He he really is just disgusting. And yet, much like the board, I wish there was more into why they hate him so much other than he calls himself Mr. Awesome. I mean, that's a good reason. Yeah, I mean, what we do see on screen, there are plenty of reasons to hate this guy. You know, he created this character that was just so over the I mean over the top for what the WWE was doing back in the day he was in bikinis he had bikini clad women he has a Camaro like Stuart said he's doing these videos that he self-produced but here's the difference he seems to have let that go 
as far as the personality part. I don't know what he's still harboring as far as bad feelings or whatnot, but he's not still trying to harbor that personality the same way that Billy Mitchell is trying to carry forward who he was in the 80s. That's for sure. At least that's the way it comes across here. And as we enter Act 2, now that we've clearly established all the players, it is time for that showdown. And it's a gift. They couldn't have written it better. I mean, honestly, yes. We feel bad for Steve Wiebe that they throw out a score, but what he needed is to get out of his house, get out of that garage, go be around other people, and really watch them in awe as they can see what he can do. It's really the best medicine in the world that he has to fly to Fun Spot and redo the game for a live audience. Something he wouldn't have been able to afford to do. I mean, a substitute teacher, he couldn't afford to do it. He was going to be out, and everybody's goading him. Oh, if you're really this good, why don't you come do it live? Like, you can just reproduce that. Again, I remember my perfect game of Contra. I hit the reset button a whole lot before I actually got that perfect game. So, it's his friend who is the one who got him involved in the documentary, who put up the money and said, all right, let's go do this. And what I find interesting about some behind-the-scenes is a lot of this with Weeby, anything before the fun spot invitation and some of those interviews was reenacted. Sure. And he videotaped himself sometimes and they used that. But because he was kind of late to the game, a lot of his story is told through confessionals and interviews and that sort of thing. Whereas the rest of this, they were there for. But it really is this fun spot tournament and he calls Billy. He's like, well, will you come play me? And is trying to get Billy out there. According to Billy... I can't find any proof of this. In between these events, he and Weeby were on stage together. They were in the same place at the same time. They had met. They were cordial. But this movie makes it sound like Billy is completely dodging Weeby the whole time. Yeah, it serves the movie's aim to build that all the way up to the climax. That they don't see each other until the last 10 minutes of the movie makes for a better movie, even if it's maybe fudging the facts. And I'm okay with that. I just want to say that's always a gray area with documentarians is at what time do you heighten things for their emotional impact? And at what times do you just say, I owe uh, debt to the way the story happened and I should not exaggerate or manipulate? Because this movie is ultimately kind of a fun, video game as it were as much like the video games themselves simplistic addictive and a little bit childish i'm okay with that choice sure and you know i look at it as like you said it's a choice in a documentary and you know you have omissions and you have lies of omissions and i don't feel like this would be considered a lie of omission the fact is is that billy did not come in and sit down and try to beat the score there live the fact that they did meet behind the scenes and stuff like that that's fine for me you know it helps build the drama that we're heading towards here you know we've talked about it quite a bit but this is the part of the movie where these two personalities really start to to diverge and you really do start to pick a side. You know, having seen this a second and third time, you know, you kind of know where it's going. But the first time through, you're not really sure who's who and who to trust and who actually is on the level. But this is where I think you really see Steve Wiebe come into his own. Yeah, I'll agree completely. Not only does he get there and he introduces himself, if he had faked it, would he show up there? I mean, you go back to the other Steve story about how he showed up and it instantly revealed himself. He was caught with his pants down when he actually had to play the game. And so here, Weeby shows up and not only does he show up, he beats a million points in front of everyone, despite the winged monkey Brian Koo running around doing everything he can to stop him, racing 
racing to the payphone to call Billy down in Florida. Well, he just passed 780000 on his first guy. I mean, this guy is something the way he's portrayed here. Yeah, you need this again. If you were scripting this, if you were in a screenwriting class and they were workshopping this story, you'd say you need to have a sub-villain around this point that gets beaten. And that's the closest we get is this Brian Koo, the number two player. And I guess will always remain the also-ran. You know, he wants so badly, much like the character we're rooting for, Weeby wants to make his mark and be number one. This guy does too. He's coming second behind Billy. He's hoping at this fun spot competition that he can at last beat Billy's score. He doesn't want to even deal with the fact that he could come in third. So he's being horrible to a weeby. You're right with something there. He doesn't want to be third, but he's absolutely fine being number two to Billy. And that's what really draws the picture of this guy. Like you said, he is a winged monkey and he's basically just an avatar for Billy at this point, which is great because like you said, if Billy's not going to be there, we need to see that going on between the drama on screen and Billy's reaction to what's happening. Otherwise, it would seem kind of empty at this point. Yeah, he calls himself the prodigy and we get a little snippet. Again, I think the Ken Burns 10-hour version of video games, we might get a whole episode of this guy and it would be rich. But just this idea that he's 30-something and retired, that basically he spends all day long eating three pancakes and four eggs, the same breakfast every day, and then just trying to beat this game of Donkey Kong because apparently Fun Spot has the wildest barrels of any arcade game of Donkey (laughs) Kong. This is the hardest classic arcade game and the hardest machine to play on and he wants to get that kill screen first to watch him not get that it's everything yeah it's said in the bonus features that he was a banker who retired at 30 and in my own mind i made up the story that may or may not be true he was a mortgage lender because i knew some mortgage lenders in the early 2000s who became multi-millionaires during the housing boom of the early george w years and i knew some people at wells fargo who had matching husband and wife each drove a matching h1 hummer to work why did they not carpool because they want to show you they had matching h1 hummers every day at work I like to think that since he's a banker, he just made a shit ton of money on the mortgage market and he could retire and just become this video game wannabe. Some people golf and some people play Donkey Kong, I guess. And maybe I shouldn't judge. I would be the pingo guy if I had my way. But it is, it's a laugh too when you meet some of these peripheral characters and they're like, oh, mappy expert, this guy, or (laughs) he's really good at ladybug. I mean, it's just funny. Yeah, and it really mattered to the makers of this that you found the big video games. They apparently found one guy who's the world record holder of literally thousands of games, probably because he's completely unopposed of who is the world champion Zaxxon player, Mm. you know? (laughs) If you say, hey, Twin Galaxies, come watch me play Zaxxon. Mm -hmm. You got 400. Haven't done anybody else. You're the champ. Hell, for all I know, I'm the world champion at Moonraker. (laughs) I'm pretty good at Burger Time. I don't know how many people want to challenge me on it. So some people have more titles than Bill Mitchell. What Bill Mitchell had that gave him the moniker, the world's best gamer, was he had five important games, not Ladybug and Mr. Do. (laughs) I love Mr. Do. That's another one. Man, oh man. 
But anyway, again, I could enjoy this world for hours and hours on end. But again, in order to tell a tight story, and again, to have that showdown, fistful of quarters, to really get down there, we have to have this moment of where the little minion goes down, and it's now Billy's move. He's got to do something because he's been challenged. You know, they took away the record the first time unfairly, it looks like. Now it cannot be challenged. He did it in public. So Weeby's got to be beat. And so enter the video. And yes, it becomes utterly apparent of Billy's character. Arnie, you mentioned it earlier that, you know, Billy's not all bad. You know, he shepherds this old lady when she needs, you know, help with the Qbert machine and stuff like that. But watching this again and getting to this spot here... I feel like that was all just a ruse to have a pack mule to take this videotape with her so he doesn't have to show up in person. I wish to God they'd put this in the movie. Bill Mitchell gives Doris, the 80-year-old Cubert champ, this tape. It says, guard it with your life. And Doris takes it there and gives it to Walter. And Walter and Brian and everyone gather around the TV. And they put it in, and it's WWE. <laughs> and they're like, was Billy on WWE? <laughs> they watch this tape, and then they call Billy, why'd you send us a wrestling tape? He's like, shit, I sent you the wrong tape. Doris curried the wrong tape, and he had to FedEx overnight the real tape. <laughs> of course, Billy videotapes WWE. <laughs> yes, he would, again. Again, the reason why you don't include that for this movie is you're constantly telling people Billy doesn't lose. Billy can't be beat. You don't want to show any weakness at all. Yeah, I understand why they didn't include it. It would completely undercut. But yet, <laughs> at this point already, we want to see him taken down a peg. Oh, yeah. Having everyone, including his minion Brian, watch the WWE David confusion. <laughs> It's twofold. One, it's the fact that he wouldn't accept a tape from his challenger, but it's okay for him to send a tape. And there's also the nature of the tape itself, which to my eyes, it looks like it is just a video glitch. God knows VHS was glitchy. I don't think he doctored it. But again, you're introducing doubt into a scenario where he insisted 100% live playing for his challenger. This is where I wish they would do a little bit of deep digging because, yeah, at first pass, it does look like it could just be a tracking issue, but it's awfully convenient the way that tracking happens. I mean, it's right over the score at certain times. I feel like they didn't give us enough information to be able to even make our own determination one way or another with this. Several things about this. First of all, in an interview when Billy was asked, why didn't you play? Billy had said, I haven't played Donkey Kong in years at that point. I was out of practice. He held onto this tape. He had beaten this record and he just saved it for the day like this that would come. God only knows how many more tapes he had there mm. where he found out what Weeby's score was. It was like, well, this is the one right above it. He could have had one, you know, a million five for all we know sitting there. He didn't because he's no longer the world champion. But the other thing is Walter Day, between the time this was filmed and the time the commentary was recorded, Walter said to Ed and Seth, this was a bad call. I shouldn't have accepted this tape. It's because we knew Billy so long that we trusted Billy. Billy wouldn't cheat. 
But looking at that tape and seeing it in this film, it was a bad call. The tape shouldn't have been taken. But I think this is part of the gatekeeping I talked about. If Billy had sent in that tape or if Brian had sent in that tape, nobody would have gone to his house to say, let me see your board. But because it was an outsider, somebody they didn't know having this thing, it became far more suspect. And now, according to what I've read, because of this movie, if you're going to play... First of all, a Twin Galaxies ref must be there. And second, before you play, you send your board to Nintendo. Nintendo says, yes, this is an unaltered working board. You play, then you send that board back to Nintendo and they say, yes, this is the same board you've used before. So that is what this little hullabaloo has led to, is people at Nintendo being like, yes, it's the same board, why are you bugging me? Well, that's good that something like that came out of this, because at this point in the documentary, I'm convinced as a viewer that Billy could have sent in a Polaroid of a higher <laughs> score, and they would have accepted it. Mm -hmm. Again, they have so much interest in keeping this guy on top. They have all bought into the idea that he's successful, and we can ride those coattails. So it is a challenge to their own. I mean, they don't know this guy. Will Weeby be nice to them? The nice thing about it is you don't get the sense that Weeby would hold a grudge. You feel like he wants their approval. And in fact, he plays better because they are watching. All of Ku's plans backfire. Gathering people to stare him down actually invigorates his game. I love that. I wish they would have also added in the film. I find this really interesting. Both Steve Weeby and Steve Sanders are very religious people. Christianity is a big part of their life. You mentioned that Steve Sanders already put something in biblical terms with the wrath of Billy. The fact that Steve Weeby, I gotta think somewhere he thinks of himself as Job. Mm -hmm. You know, I yeah. mean, everything he does, he was literally the world champion for a single day. Yeah, it's a heartbreaker. And again, you know, the documentarian did this intentionally, but he's seen crying in the ice cream parlor, Humpty Dumpty. I mean, it's just, it's too <laughs> perfect. It's like, that's where you know they're like, we got to get him to this particular shot. That's where you see the manipulation. But it is, it's so true. Just to watch him fall again, it's a killer. But we know there's an act three, nine months later, they're playing Eye of the Tiger, for Christ's sake. There's going to be a rematch. <laughs> Which is where... Weeby's gonna win, right? I mean, that's the movie you think you're watching. But yes, there is the rematch, and it's after the Fun Spot game. I feel the movie lacks. This is a really short movie. It's only 80 minutes, but after Fun Spot, all of a sudden we're spending a lot more time with Walter. He's talking about the Guinness Book of World Records. We're very invested in Weeby versus Billy, and we're like, why do we care about Walter anymore? He's talking more about Twin Galaxies. We no longer like Twin Galaxies. We're spending some time with some of these other people around and it's because the documentary crew happened to be there when he got the call from Guinness you're our guy now you're going to do all the video game records that suddenly raised the stakes because now who's going to be the first person in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world champion holder if they submitted today Walter was going to say it's Billy yeah I also suspect that the reason we're spending more time with Walter at this point is they might have been hoping for some sort of confession from Walter. Because Walter, at the end of the day, I do believe is an upstanding guy who wants to do the right thing. Maybe he gets caught up a little bit in the politics and, you know, the limelight of Twin Galaxies and being in the shadow of Billy Mitchell. But at the end of the day, I think he wants to do the right thing. And maybe that's what we're seeing is him distancing himself from that place a little bit in this part of the film. That's really the victory of the third act. It is a shocker. My memory was 
is that Weeby comes in and wins the day, and that doesn't happen here. What he does is he wins their hearts. We'll see that Steve Sanders will actually say, with Billy right by his side, you know, this guy's upstanding, and I respect him, and watching that crush Billy. I mean, there's nothing better than that scene where they stage it as the first time they're meeting, and Billy, you know, we just hate him at that point when he walks in and says something to the effect of, there's some people here I don't want to talk to. I mean, it is a moral victory that is won in the third act. Yeah, it's the first Rocky. We thought it was Rocky 2 or Rocky 3 with Eye of the Tiger. What we're just missing is the scene of Weeby and his wife with Weeby saying, I just want to go to the kill screen. I don't need the score. I just want to go to the kill screen. <laughs> but your eyes. The doc said you'll lose your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love this family. Maybe they don't get enough time. But again, you get the genuine sense. There's some shots of them going to the pool, to the beach. He is not there just for the game. He brought them along. They are a source of strength for him he wants them to be there and that again these are the kinds of moves that allow us to see character and it doesn't even matter whether he beats the record or not we like this guy and he shows up what a jerk the quote-unquote winner really is and Billy does say there was more said there, that he actually stopped and talked to Weeby. And he said, I couldn't talk to Weeby much because then people are going to say I'm interfering with his game if I stand there and engage in conversation. But he said, notice the way the camera jumps from the time Billy says hi to me. And then I say, I don't want to spend too much time talking to some people. No, I had no desire to stand there and chew the fat with Billy, but I wasn't as cold as the movie makes me out to be. But yeah, this is where Billy and Steve are supposed to have the show down. If this was scripted, then that's what this would be. This isn't scripted. The fact that Billy even showed up, he was like hiding. He drove past in a car. You mentioned Tommy Wiseau and I'm seeing some of that when he's like he's dropping off Sanders at the door, but then driving away and then they're all going to the hot sauce place and he's in back, but he won't come out because Weeby showed up. It doesn't matter how well he plays. He is the loser. I mean, it's very clear from this point. And all of the sick fans feel that. You can see them turning and going by the end. I mean, it breaks my heart just that they're like, we'll believe you next time. Go home, make a tape, break the record where you're best at your home in your garage, and we will believe you next time. And that's a nicer ending, really. But it is really sad for the documentary crew. They followed Doris. Doris didn't win. Mm. They followed Weeby. Weeby didn't win. They followed Billy. Billy didn't play. We never see Billy play, do we? Other than maybe some close-ups of hands, some insert shots of him. But we never see him play a game. He just talks about playing. He talks a good game, but we've never seen him play a good game. <laughs> Even his wife says she's never seen him play competitively head-to-head. -head. And I mean, she ought to know. I mean, this is a man that prides himself on being the best. But in order to keep that title, it means that he doesn't play at all. And that's sad. But this to me is where the documentary succeeds. Because by this point, I don't even care to see if he wins or not. I think the true victory is what Stuart spoke about. Is that he went here, he showed that he's real, and he won people over. And to me, that was the real victory inside of all of this. The fact that he ended up winning the title for a year or so that we learn in the credits, that's great. That's just, that's a cherry on top. But I think this documentary has already succeeded by this point in the film. It truly is a David versus Goliath story. And the first time I watched this, I got so wrapped up into it. And I already was cynical in 2007. How much of this is really real? How much of this is being played up by the editors? But I was so Team Weeby at this point. And, you know, to see him be like, well, I'm going home. 
I'm going to spend more time with my family now. I'm not going to play the game. It was a little bit disappointing to me. You wanted to see Mitchell taken down a peg. You wanted to see Mr. Hot Sauce get a notch in his armor. And they could only do it in titles right before the credits. Yeah, it's an afterthought. I mean, and maybe that means that the focus is more on the moral victory. And maybe that just means we weren't there to film some of this stuff. Again, always the bind of the documentarian is when you don't get the footage, you can't play with it. The film director can always raise the money and shoot the scene that he needs. The documentarian can't go back in time. They were about a week away from their first festival showing when Weeby called them up and said, hey, I got the record now. And they're like, crap, open Final Cut Pro. We have to add something really fast. Wow, I'm surprised to think they could have had a movie without that. But okay. I mean, it's everything that he does come back and get that Guinness. It's what we needed to believe could happen and that it does is, is everything at the end. So Justin Stewart, do you recommend King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters? Justin. Both of you guys have said the one story that has been on the top of my mind since watching this movie again. And you're both right. It's David versus Goliath. What we're watching here really isn't about video games. It's about the little guy against the establishment. And that's a story that runs through every culture, every era. It's just a timeless tale that you can follow along with. The fact that it happens to be about video games from our youth makes it all that much better. So, yeah, at the end of the day, this was a fun rewatch for me. I remember being enthralled with it the first time around, and second viewing was great again, you know, so much so that I wanted to do a little more digging. You know, Arnie, you mentioned a few times you watched a lot of the extras and stuff like that. I wanted to find out if this Billy character, Billy Mitchell, was as big of a douchebag that this documentary made him <laughs> seem, you know? And there might have been some fudging of how things actually went down here or there. There might have been a little bit of omissions to make him look a little bit more like a jerk. But I've watched interviews with this guy. I actually sat through an hour-long con panel that he put on with Walter a few years ago in Denver where they're talking about a Pac-Man kill screen. And there's just something about this guy's arrogance it doesn't matter how much you dial up, you know, omissions of how he made it. Actually said one thing and it was misunderstood. At his heart, he is obsessed with himself. And that's all that really matters. And to me, that makes him truly a villain. He doesn't see what's going on around him as much as he cares how he's affecting the world in his own eyes. So yeah, to me, it works as a story. It's enjoyable. I think it stands up. Maybe another generation or two, you know, when some of us are dying off and don't really have a tie back to Donkey Kong and arcade days. I don't see it holding up that long, but it's still a fun film. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a good recommend. Stuart. Agreed. I'm going to make a prediction that this might be the best film in this entire series we cover we start at the top here and i think it works for two reasons one it is a comedy i mean it is hysterical to see yeah what feels like mob moves and power plays but done on such a silly level that it again i my reference is christopher guest if you've seen best in show or waiting for guffman the way that he'll spoof small town people and their big town ambitions it's like watching one of those come to life in reality the fact that this is a documentary and verifies that these people are real and not just creations of comedians will blow your mind. But I'm also going to make the argument, it's a good game. I mean, this feels like the games it champions. It's simple, it's addictive, it's adrenalizing, and it's silly and all in equal measure. And I have such a good time rooting for Weeby, booing Mitchell. It's, you know what, not only is he arrogant, 
But he can't even see how ridiculous he looks. I mean, that hair, the hot sauce. I mean, you can't be that cool. <laughs> it's just that he doesn't have any self-awareness, that he can't laugh at himself ever. That is the Achilles heel that will just have you rooting for his downfall. And when it comes, it is tears in the eyes, jump up, screaming, a joyous thing to see. I love this film, and it's a high recommend. You said something during The Wizard, Stuart, that I was thinking about with this movie. You said, it's just not engaging to watch people play video games. And yet, that is the crux of this. All of the dramatic moments are watching other people play video games, and not even good video games like I've liked to watch people play, where I could just enjoy cutscenes and things, but these rote video games. But yet, this movie, because I think it's real, and because you do have such a hero, such a villain, and these factions that go around, it is the single best instance in any movie I can think of, of watching somebody use a computer machine and making it exciting. And I'm talking about all those hacker movies. I'm thinking about Swordfish mm. or Hackers or whatever that one that Harrison Ford did was. Oh God, Firewall. Yes. <laughs> And The Wizard. And, you know, most of the movies we're going to be reviewing are video games brought to life, not somebody playing a video game. But as far as people playing a video game go, this is good because it has good people. It's the people that make the story. Steve Sanders is so interesting to me because he started off a total liar who became Billy's best friend. And yet, despite being Billy's best friend, he's won over by Weeby and becomes a good friend of him and is the first person to say, you're an upstanding guy. You know, despite all these suspicions people have about you, despite the fact that you got your start from Roy, you're an upstanding guy. To see people won over like this is a lot like Karate Kid, because what Daniel-san is fighting for there is respect. The big thing is after he crane kicks Johnny, Johnny comes over and says, you're all right, Russo. And that's the moment where he not only kicked their ass, but he got the acceptance so he doesn't have to be afraid to go back to school again. And he here we see Weeby get acceptance. And the fact that he won the championship at the end, it is the cherry on top. It's a really strong recommend. It's one of my go-to documentaries when I'm asked what a really good one is. And I can see why Seth Gordon ended up getting a Hollywood career out of this. You know, it started with this documentary and now he's directing major motion pictures. And that's because this is above the bar of your average documentary. Yeah, it hits me in the right way. You know, it's definitely going to play best to the generation that remembers this time period and play these games. But I think it's for everyone. And I think it's best as a documentary. I know there have been plans, maybe continue to be plans, about remaking this with, I don't know what, Steve Buscemi or the latest comedian, that they could do this with Hollywood actors and strike gold with a bigger audience. I don't know. I've seen this done before. My go-to is always the documentary When We Were Kings, and then they made Ali with Will Smith. It's just a big difference to watch Hollywood actors imitate real life moments of heartache and success. You want to see the real thing and there's no actor good enough to mimic those moments when they're pure and they're real and they're caught on film. Yeah, it would tear the heart right out of this documentary. I mean, this documentary lives and breathes on the heart that Weeby shows us throughout. I don't care how good of an actor you are. I don't think too many people are going to go along for the ride of somebody acting really excited about becoming the best guy at Donkey Kong. It's not the story that matters. It's the heart that matters here. I agree with that. I think what happened is when they made this documentary, they got these people to literally sign their lives away. They own the life story of Bill Mitchell now. 
that is in the papers that they signed and whatever compensation they gave him. And apparently, if there's a fictionalized version, it's in that contract that Mr. Awesome can't be in it at all. <laughs> you know, just that backbiting that Billy required in his contract. But... I would think that when they're making this, they're thinking, we're making a little documentary. How many people watch documentaries? We're watching one about an 80-year-old grandma win the Qbert score. That's what they thought they were making. Once this became the hit that it did, really rising above the subculture of video games and documentaries and getting seen by a lot more people, I do credit Netflix and Netflix streaming with this, too. The fact that there's so many more of these niche, topic-oriented documentaries at your fingertips than ever ever before. I think, why would they go back to this? It makes sense to go forward. I could see this as a movie. You mentioned Steve Buscemi. He's way too freaking old, but this feels like Kevin James versus Adam Sandler, right? Pixels? Eh, maybe Michael Sarah. I mean, I don't know who the geeks are of today's generation. Probably some YouTubers would be perfect candidates if they can do the dramatics. You want people our age who grew up with the games, though. You want the one who was in the 80s who now puts on the bad wig, and we saw him when he was young and cool, and he's still holding on to that. As for the World Donkey Kong Championship, this movie actually inspired people. Like, I had a fleeting thought to go beat the championship. It actually went back and forth between Steve and Billy for several years. And it ended with Billy on top in 2007. And then he stayed there for years until in 2010, somebody named Hank Chine, who saw this movie, as like, well, I'm going to do that. He became the world champion. Billy then took it back. Steve took it back from then. And then 2010 is the last time anybody in this movie has been champion of Donkey Kong. Hank was the champion. And then somebody, Robbie Lankman, came in and Wes Copeland came in. And they have been trading it back and forth. And the high score is now over one million. So, even though they got a chance to be their champions for their respective years, maybe one of them will make a comeback someday. Who knows? Well, he'll always have the hot sauce, I suppose. And Weeby, he is a full-time teacher now, but he also has stayed really good friends, I suppose, or maybe there's some form of loyalty with Seth Gordon, as Weeby has cameoed in almost all of his films. He's been in Four Christmases and Horrible Bosses and Pixels. Yeah, you gotta have him for Pixels. Yeah, but I don't think you gotta have him for some of these others, but anytime Seth is making a movie, he calls on Steve, but he doesn't call on Billy. Mm. Yeah, well, that's obvious. Steve Weeby seems very approachable. Billy makes it clear that he he lives above us. You know, in investigating this movie, you'll find there's answers and controversies to this documentary. There's people out there that want to give you the true story of what wasn't shown in King of Kong and stuff like that. And I, I dip my toe into that a little bit. It ends up being, to me, some people that were in the movie and cut because their story wasn't compelling or whatnot. So it's just people who thought this was going to be a documentary, more of your standard, just documenting people getting a high score and moving on. That's what it ends up to at the end of the day. I tried to find it because my memory was I read this after the fact. I read the articles after the fact of seeing this in 07 and read it was a whole bunch of fakery. But trying to find those now and even digging up defunct web forums from that day using archive.org, there's nothing I can find that says this was heavily modified. 
they are who they are. And that is, I believe, well represented. And some people got very upset about how this portrayed the gamer community. The biggest detractor isn't even in the movie. It's somebody who wanted to make his own video game documentary, but people slammed their doors because everybody didn't want to be portrayed like Bill Mitchell now. Fair enough. But we're not done with Mario. It should be said we are moving away from Donkey Kong, but only to go to the star vehicle for the protagonist of that game next week. Yes, Super Mario Brothers. Because when you want video games, you want Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. In overalls, fighting Dennis Hopper with a lizard tongue. Uh, You know, I've done a good job of never having to see this movie, and I guess I'm going to break my record. Yeah, your luck just ran out. (laughs) I think I've seen it. It's one of those things where, because I am a uh, connoisseur of bad movies, I've always wanted to, but I believe it didn't hold my attention enough to, like, literally watch it. This will be the first time I've actually had to pay attention to Super Mario Brothers. I wasn't even a big fan of the game, but we'll talk about that next week, too. Well, thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy all of these arcade game reviews we have coming up. And in the meantime, we have something else coming up. The Last Jeepers Creepers. I don't know if it's going to be another 23 years until we get a sequel, but uh, we are concluding the trilogy of Jeepers Creeper films this Friday with Jeepers Creepers 3. It's the new one in that series and the last show in our donation drive, which means our drive is coming to an end. You'll no longer be able to get the shows from us in just a couple of weeks and the prices will go up on Podbean. So if you want to hear the Phantasm, Child's Play, Hellraiser, or Jeepers Creepers shows, head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And while you're at that page, check out about the patron because that is where you can hear our review of The Wizard. And you know you want to hear us talking Fred Savage, Christian Slater, and Super Mario 3. Yeah, let's be clear to people. Not Wizard of Oz, no Judy Garland, no rainbows even. Not even the Wiz. Yeah, it's pretty dismal. But yeah, there in 1989, sort of as a preamble, it wasn't quite a video game movie. But it was about people that could play video games really well and wear power gloves. Uh, we've covered that movie for our January patron. We try to find a, a movie a month now. We'll be doing the patron movies every month. We're hoping that people will find the time and the money to be able to join us for these extra shows. If not, we still love you, and we'll see you next week for Super Mario Brothers. We'll talk to you then. Game over. So heartbreaking. I guess it's not even about Donkey Kong anymore. I don't know, it's become just a game and trying to get a score recognized and trying to beat this empire that I'm trying to break through and get a fair chance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. That's how you play Donkey Kong. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Why do we do it? Because we actually love this, because we enjoy this. We're fascinated by this. It's just something in our genes. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. So we'll be seeing you next week. It's just a skip away. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other video game movies, including Resident Evil, The Wizard, and more. If you do not know the next pattern coming up in a Tron light cycle event, you will lose your life. 
Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. When I have to watch that pile of eight tapes over there for Dwayne Richards' two-day Nibbler performance, that's 48 straight hours of paying attention to make sure that he's doing everything correctly. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep playing, now playing. Part of the reason I'm still here doing it is for them to help them have the benefit of this or the happiness of this so that they can go on and continue to benefit people. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. I'm afraid if he can't do it. I mean, I know he can be successful. I'm just afraid. What if it doesn't happen? You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. That was a godsend to him in the last couple years to get him through. Like it might be, it was like a safe haven for him. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Anything that's unexplainable, out of the ordinary, um, we have to keep our eyes out for. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these movies and games with other listeners. He's been always an advocate of live scores, live scores, but now he's all of a sudden Mr. Videotape. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. A lot of people are... Yeah, people, a lot of people read that book. Some people sort of ruin their lives to be in You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. For the media comes and meets with the superstars. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be the center of attention. I wanted the glory. I wanted the fame. I wanted the pretty girls come up and say, Hi, I see that you're good at Centipede. Now Playing's video game retrospective series is edited by Steve and Arnie. With this, it's just like me and the machine. I can doesn't matter if you, you know, if you let me down or someone else it doesn't come through. I can always go out there. I'm in control. Now playing credits read by Brock. He talks to us about stuff that's not just like homework and schoolwork and school and stuff. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film or game discussed in this podcast. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion picture reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. The film and all music and clips used are the property of the original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I haven't really thought too much about, you know, 
the, the controversy, I've kind of let it go. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. No matter what I say, it draws controversy. Sort of like the abortion issue. So I have to be careful how I share my opinions. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. These things take time to uh, verify, and I have to look at every single one of them. again for video game news update i'm walter day at the twin galaxies international scoreboard that was the game that i put most of my quarters in after that tron you know, stuff like that. Maybe Gauntlet every once in a while. Oh, Gauntlet. Good <laughs> one. I forgot about that. And there's no movie. Warrior need food. Valkyrie is about to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, outside of... I'm a nerd. I think you guys are both nerds. Nerds! 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 Wikipedia has shown me how much I don't know about music when I look at the genre of a song and it's like post-funk grunge rap. I'm like, what the hell is that? That's a record store employee trying to keep their job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it is a record store when it comes to music. I just look for country, rap, rock soundtracks it had the pie factory level oh there was a pie factory i never knew if it was real or not i never got that. you know how kids would lie to you they'd be like oh i got to level 18 and there was a circus and you're like i've never gotten there I, there's so many lies i've never heard disputed somebody once told me if i play the legend of zelda and win seven times there's a new level and i actually spent the time to do it and no there wasn't mm -hmm. <laughs>